Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to delve a little deeper into the public policy challenges facing Australia and the region. I'm Martin Pearce. We're here at the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy in Canberra, the region's leading graduate public policy school. And today I am very happy to have my old pod partner back in the studio. Professor Sharon Bessel has been out of the country in the last few weeks, but she hasn't forgotten the podcast in her time away. In fact, far from it. Welcome back, Sharon. And tell us, what have you been up to? Well, I've been chasing spring. So I've been in Finland for the last few weeks, um, which was fabulous. Spring was just breaking, so everyone was happy. Uh, I was there for a couple of conferences and a workshop, and I managed to make a side trip to St. Petersburg, but that's another story. One of the things that I did while I was there was to talk with Professor Oli Kangas. So our regular pod listeners will probably remember that you spoke with Oli, gee, back in 2016, I think it was, about um, Finland's recent experiment with universal basic income. So it was a great opportunity to catch up with Oli to hear how that experiment's been going and to just learn a little bit more about the concept of universal basic income. Yeah, so if you missed that podcast, it's actually episode 17. We're on to episode 44, I think, now. And and on it, I also talked to uh, Professor Guy Standing from the University of London and Charles Murray from the American Enterprise Institute for quite a diverse range of uh, views about universal basic income. So, Sharon, the interview that recorded with Ollie is a bit of a sort of UBI revisited episode. I'm fond of my Billy Bragg quotes, so I'm going to call this our back to basics, as in, you know, basic income, back to basics episode. Very nice, very nice. Um, yes, it was a back to basics. It was also a really interesting time to be talking to Ollie about this. A couple of days before I had the opportunity to talk with him, it was all over over the the media, both in Finland but in in other parts of Europe, that the experiment was being cancelled, that it wasn't going ahead. Now, that wasn't quite the case. You know, reports of its demise were a little bit over-reported. The Finnish government had taken the decision not to extend the experiment to more people. Because it was a a two-year experiment, right? That's right, that's right. And it will continue for the full two years. Um, But... um, The um, organisation that's running the experiment that Ollie heads up had requested that it be expanded Um, and the decision was taken not to do that, but it will continue for the full two years and so next year we'll start to see the results of the experiment coming through. But the experiment is certainly continuing, so there's going to be lots of really interesting data coming out of it. But Ollie also had quite a lot to say about, uh, I guess, the challenges that Finland in particular is facing. You know, we think of Finland as um, the great model of the welfare state, but they've got almost 9% unemployment that they're trying 
trying to deal with at the moment. And they've got a very, very complex welfare state. They've got lots of benefits being paid to people, which is administratively cumbersome and also quite expensive. So Finland's looking for ways to streamline, but also new approaches. Um, and other countries are, are looking towards them, but also following suit. So lots of really interesting issues to talk to Ali about. And I was so grateful to Ollie. He um, he agreed on a beautiful spring day in, in Helsinki that was also a public holiday to come and spend an hour or so chatting about universal basic income instead of going swimming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's very generous of Ollie. And I should say that the interview itself was recorded in a hotel in Helsinki. So you, so for fans of authentic Finnish hotel noises, this is the podcast that you've been waiting for because you get to hear a bit of you know hotel lobby action behind the lift going off, the lift noise going off uh, Occasionally, I did wonder actually, Sharon, when I was listening to it, when I was editing it the first instance, whether you'd actually recorded it in the lift. And then I thought that might be quite a good concept for a podcast interviewing academic in lifts, you know, get their sort of elevator pitches. How do you feel about that? I think it's a great idea. We could call it 15th floor. Um, and I should add, we, we were in the lobby, we weren't in the bar, but it was very noisy. <laughs> well, look, before we get to that interview, a reminder to our listeners that we are really keen on getting your feedback. We love to hear your questions, your comments, or any suggestions you've got for future podcasts. And in fact, we're going to be going few through a few of them uh, towards the end of this podcast. You can email us at podcast at policyforum.net or you can share your thoughts with us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Sharon and I will be back shortly, but for now, let's hear Sharon's interview with Ollie. The experiment with a basic income in Finland started in January 2017. It saw 2,000 Finns receiving a flat monthly payment of 560 euros as basic income as part of a two-year experiment. That experiment was lauded by supporters of basic income everywhere as a sign that it might be the policy instrument for our time. And the experiment in Finland has of course been keenly watched around the world. Professor Oli Kangas was one of the experiment's designers and he spoke with Policy Forum Pod back in July 2016 before the experiment began. It's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Kangas back to the, uh, the pod today to talk about what's happened over the past two years. And of course, we're talking just as the Finnish government has announced that it won't be expanding the experiment, um, but still the Finnish experiment has provided um, a great deal of evidence and information for us to be thinking about in terms of the future of, of, basic, of universal basic income. So, Ollie, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Oli, as I said, we, we have heard that the experiment um, won't be expanded, but it will be continued until the end of this year. The decision not to expand the experiment beyond the, the current 2,000 people who are unemployed, what are some of the reasons behind that decision? Uh, was it an economic decision, a, a political one? Um, did it relate to what you were finding in the experiment? I think that uh, there were lots of reasons and there were politics involved, there were money involved and there were uh, all kind of things involved. Uh, for the first, the experiment was planned to run 2017-2018 and then in our final report when we planned this experiment, we, 
uh, said to the government that it would be good if we could expand it outside the scope of those 2,000 unemployed persons. And we said that uh, the costs would be something like 40 to uh, 70 millions. Now we have uh, only 20 millions in our disposal. And uh, then uh, the government uh, said that uh, they perhaps don't have that money. But uh, they said that uh, they will deliberate if they have possibilities to continue it. And now uh, the Minister of Finance has said that uh, the next government possibly uh, will at least discuss uh, the continuation or the possible continuation of the experiment. So that uh, I think that there were now much better possibilities to create a better and very good experiment in Finland because in the beginning of 2019, we will have income register that's updated so that it's uh, at least uh, working on the monthly basis so that uh, we know which kind of income people are getting from employment, which kind of money they are getting uh, from uh, social security, etc., etc., so that it would be much easier to create uh, ICT-based um, <clears throat> uh, platform to pay out the benefits. So that uh, that would be my hope that uh, the government, next government uh, will be wise enough to expand the experiment. I know the experiment's results won't be released until uh, 2019 when the experiment has been concluded, but are you in a position to talk a little bit about what seems to be emerging from the experiment so far and whether it's had the effect that you are hoping for, particularly in relation to, to the labour market and providing incentives for people who are unemployed to be able to enter the labour market without fear of their, their income um, being undermined or being lessened. Basing our results and evaluations on registers. And in Finland we have excellent registers in that sense that uh, we have data on income, we have data on utilization of social security, we have uh, registers on um, the use of medicine, which kind of medicine people are eating, which kind of diagnosis they have, which kind of uh, sicknesses they are suffering from, etc., uh, etc. Et so that when we combine different registers, we get the rich data how people behave. But the problem is here in Finland, as I suppose that in many other countries, that the registers are lagging behind. So that, for example, the income data will be available almost one year after the previous year. So that the data, income data for 2017 will be available in the end of 2018. And on the basis of that, we can say something already uh, in the end of this year, what happened during 2017. And then uh, the total uh, evaluation, when, where we evaluate 2017-2018, it will start in the end of 2019. But uh, we will have elections uh, in uh, one year's time from now, and of course... Uh, when parties are rallying and having those or preparing the um, agendas for, for uh, elections, they will have results and they will ask results. And of course, we have to provide something on the basis of 2017. Uh, but then we have planned that uh, we will have uh, interviews 
and face-to-face uh, interviews, or surveys and face-to-face interviews where we ask people why they behaved like they behaved. That if somebody is staying at home, we will ask, why did you stay at home? Why didn't you go to work? And if somebody started his or her own business or took employment, we will ask that the, what were the good and bad sides. And uh, on the basis of registers, we can't get out those motivational bases that people have. Uh, and we don't get out people's experiences of bureaucracy, social bureaucracy, on the basis of registers. We must go and meet people and ask, and we must have surveys and ask different kind of things. And in the case that we will have those surveys, then uh, preliminary results uh, dealing with the whole project or the experiment will be available already in the beginning of next year. So it's really, in, it's really at the beginning of next year that we're going to know what the impacts of the experiment were. And as you say, that's where you'll find the richness of how it's impacted on people's lives and, and just what the, uh, what the effect of, of the basic income has been. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when the government uh, uh, gave us this task, they said that uh, they are primarily interested in labour market effects. Yes. Uh, but uh, they also said that... Uh, the, one reason why they started this experiment is that if basic income is a possibility to make our social security, that's rather complex, more transparent and simpler. And also we have to ask about bureaucracy and that kind of things and then answer those questions the government will have. Ali, would the longer-term idea be that if universal basic income is instituted in Finland, that it would replace other benefits that are currently provided by the government, that it would be uh, that the, the people would receive the basic income, but, for example, old age pensions or disability pensions may be rolled up into that basic income, and that basic income would replace those other benefits. Is, is that the intent? Uh, I think that the, it's... Uh at least for the time being out of question, so that what we are now experimenting, it's a partial basic income. It's yes. not the proper basic income uh, replacing all possible social security benefits. For example, in that Canadian experiment, they have a proper basic income that's high enough to replace almost everything. Uh, whereas in our case, uh, it's only just a minimum level and it will replace those minimum levels of security. Because in Finland we have a dual social security system, so that we have minimum benefits uh, for the unemployed, for sick, for uh, rehabilitation, etc., etc., and they usually are flat rate based. Right. And then uh, on top of that we have income-related benefits, and they are totally income-related benefits so that we don't have any ceilings so that the benefits can be rather high, for example, pensions or sickness benefits or whatever. Uh, so that the, in our case, the, uh, in, in our experiment, the basic income, partial basic income replaces all, uh, only the basic unemployment compensation and the level is precisely the same as, uh, as we are paying out the basis. And on top of that, people are getting uh, something extra. That uh, I would say that nobody leaves on that, that basis, but it's, it's a basis and gives some kind of, of feeling that I'm safe 
and the safety net is not that fancy, but anyway, I'm not starving and I'm not die, uh, dying. And it's enough to give people that sense of security? Yeah, I, I, I think so, so that it, it's a basis. And the reason why I think that if basic income sometimes in this country will be implemented, it will be that basic minimum, uh, rather small sum of money that will not uh, somehow erode those uh, employment-related benefits. And the reason for that is it's linked to trade unions and it's linked to politics and uh, social uh, societal power in uh, Finland or institutional power in Finland. Because uh, employment-related pensions, they are run by social partners. They are owned by trade unions and employer federations. And immediately, if we say that the basic income would be, say, a thousand euros a month, in that case, they say that no way, because it will erode basis for uh, contributions to uh, pensions, because uh, very many uh, people who are living or, or getting small wages, they don't, or they wouldn't have any use or benefit of paying those contributions to pension system because uh, the basic income is high enough to give the same amount of money. In that case, the willingness of paying contributions will uh, somehow disappear and evaporate. And precisely in the same way, uh, unemployment funds, they are run mostly by trade unions. And in the case that we had high basic income, in that case, uh, again, the willingness of uh, being a member in trade union-based uh, unemployment funds would disappear. And in, uh, when people join to unemployment fund, they usually also join to union. And the union density in Finland is one of the highest in the world. Uh, it's uh, over 70% among employees. So that the trade unions and employer federations are against high level of basic income uh, of obvious reasons and also the social democrats that have very close connections to trade unions are against. And actually the uh, present leader of our social democratic party, he used to be a leader of one uh, big trade union. So that there's very, very strong the connections between social democracy and uh, trade unionism in this country. And I think that context is fascinating in terms of how um, the politics of a, a country um, shape the way in which universal basic income might play out and might be supported, um, but also the way in which the nature of the welfare state intersects with, with universal basic income. I know some advocates of... Um, basic income in the United States, for example, have argued that it should be at a higher level but should replace all other benefits yeah. um, in the way that the Canadian experiment is, um, is, is unfolding at the moment where it would, um, basic income would replace many other benefits. I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on some of those philosophical debates about the role of, of universal basic income. You've talked about the particular context in Finland. One of the concerns in some other countries has been that 
if universal basic income is introduced in a way that replaces all other benefits, then it may actually reinforce inequality because people, for example, with a disability, um, young people who have been in the out-of-home care system and are transitioning into society, arguably need more in terms of financial resources and other support in order to have an equal life. The philosophical question and then a more practical question that's linked to uh, basic income discussion, uh, at least this country and also in my mind, is that uh, which kind of view we have people or personality so that our people lazy by origin or are they active in that sense that uh, if we give manna from heaven what will happen uh, somebody will uh, some uh, persons are saying that uh, it leads to laziness people are lazy uh, by their nature and they will do uh, nothing in the case that they will get that manna from heaven and on the other hand uh, if we believe that people are active they will find activities and do things like the children of Israel, when they got manna from heaven, they began to walk towards promised land. So that uh, we have two visions here, uh, and how how what is our concept of humanity? So that it it has very very strong connotations then an impact on uh, the views we have uh, on basic income. But then uh, there's a the practical question then is that whatever in, in both sides we can we can say that there must be a very strong service side so that we must have very strong social services so that if we believe that people are lazy in that case we have to have some kind of services that will nudge people to do something that we call activity in, in uh, our, our everyday uh, speech. And uh, on the other hand, also, if we believe in the uh, active model, in that case, we have to offer possibilities for people in the case that they want to do something. So, the, But the, I think that the, most people would continue to work because work uh, in itself has an intrinsic value and, and value as such and people enjoy doing things. So that uh, that kind of things are there and the Finnish discussion. And also, uh, perhaps the Finnish discourse has now changed so that uh, when this experiment began, uh, there were much more willingness to have universality and unconditional benefit, and the unconditionality was a kind of word. But now we are speaking much more about conditional benefits. That's a, an interesting change. In a fairly short period of time, you know, in 2016, it seemed there was very strong support for um, unconditional basic income. What's driven the change over the last few years towards the, conditionality? I think that the, the difference perhaps is not that big as it may look like because uh, also in the basic income experiment and in that discussion that the government had then, uh, they had very strong emphasis on empl- employment consequences and employment enhancing uh, labor force participation was one motivation. And they want to see if basic income is good for that. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So that the employment was also there, the focus, and in that activation employment also, uh, and actually it has a much stronger focus. So that the... Uh, and, uh, Government is uh, somehow experimenting not only with basic income, but they are experimenting with uh, something that's called uh, participatory uh, social policy, so that uh, people are getting something, but uh, they must do something in order to get that uh, that money, so that people must be show activation and activity in return of money, so that there are lots of experiments going on here. And the present uh, centre-right government, uh, I can have opinions on it, but uh, I think that the good thing is that uh, they have launched something that's called experimental culture, and they are experimenting different kind of things and trying to get evidence and then base their decisions uh, on evidence. But uh, anyway, uh, they will base their decisions on political will and political beliefs rather than, than our numbers. Whatever we show to them, they will say, that, yes, yes, uh, yes, yes, of course, but we will do it in that way. And I think perhaps in every country in the world, the politics ultimately will win out. But at least when an evidential base is being developed... Um, we, we have some understanding of what the impacts of policy are likely to be. So that's a positive thing in Finland, regardless of the politics that play out. Yeah, yeah. and uh, honestly, I big, uh, think that the, the government is willing to at least to listen. And uh, I have been a couple of times in those uh, governmental meetings where all ministers are sitting, and we have had nice discussions. They are asking... Uh, Sometimes stupid questions to my mind, but uh, sometimes precisely they hit the target yes. and they, they have very good questions. Yeah. Oli, Finland has been at the at the forefront globally of um, building an evidence base around the effects of universal basic income, but a, a number of countries are now following, um, in Ontario, in Canada, in Scotland, um, in India. Have you had conversations with people in other parts of the world who are now following Finland in terms of experimenting with universal basic income? Yeah, uh, we have met a couple of times, and uh, the closest context, uh, contacts we have with the Dutch colleagues and uh, we have planned uh, some collaboration and also uh, we have been in contact with the Canadians and now uh, more recently some contacts uh, have been established with the Scottish guys who are planning the experiment uh, so that the, the experiments are different in that sense that uh, here in Finland we have 2,000 unemployed persons and uh, it's obligatory, it's legally obligatory uh, our experiment and we have a control group so that we have a treatment group and control group 
and because it's uh, obligatory, we don't have uh, selection bias. And uh, it's nationwide random sampling, and because uh, the control group and the experiment, uh, experimental group were identical in the very beginning of the experiment, now if we in the end of the experiment find uh, differences between the treatment group and the control group, in that case we can conclude uh, rather strongly that differences are caused by uh, the uh, treatment. So that, that's a that's good thing. But the, the bad thing in our, uh, our experiment is that we have only 2,000 persons and it's only a two-years experiment. In Canada, they have 3,000 people included in the experiment. The level is higher than our, uh, the basic income is higher than in our case. And uh, then uh, they have experiment that will last three years. So that in that sense, it's better. But the problem in Canada is that uh, it's voluntary. People can jump in and they can uh, jump out in the case that they uh, will do that. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, they have uh, an experiment with recipients of social assistance so that it's, uh, uh, in a way, limited group, group of people uh, with whom they are experimenting. And uh, I don't know yet what they are going to do in Scotland. But uh, yes, we have been discussing with them, and uh, then because basic income is such a complex thing. And one experiment here or there couldn't say if basic income is good or not. But when we combine results from different kind of experiments, when we compare what they are getting out in Canada, when we compare what they are getting out in Scotland, with the, we will get out here in Finland, and also perhaps we can learn something from the Indian and Kenyan experiments so that we can create a better picture what basic income is about and what it, it can do and what it can't do. Just finally, as we, we finish this conversation, you were saying earlier that in Finland you have a very strong trade union movement and so that's an important context here. One of the concerns that I've heard um, some sceptics of universal basic income in other parts of the world raise is the concern that if the government is providing a basic income, that may be an incentive for employers to put downward pressure on wages um, and to argue that lower wages, particularly in a flexible gig economy, that lower wages are, are reasonable because the government is filling the gap, if you like. Do you see those kinds of concerns as being realistic? Um, do you think that's a, a potential problem with universal basic income? That it, that it may take responsibility away from employers or lessen political commitment to basic wages, to minimum wages? Yeah, we have that kind of discussion also here in this country and trade unions especially are putting forward that kind of argument. But I would say that very much depends uh, on which kind of view, uh, view we have uh, on our future. If we are thinking that uh, we have a global economy, then the question is that, uh, for example, Finland is small, uh, extremely open uh, national economy. Uh, is it possible here in this country uh, to uh, resist all things that are coming from outside, from the global economy? 
So that, is it possible to say that no, we will not have low-paid jobs? Uh, and uh, the answer from trade unions and also maybe from social democrats are that we will we are able to resist that we will only have high jobs high uh, high skilled jobs high paid jobs uh, full time jobs uh, but uh, i'm a little bit skeptical against that because uh, already if you look which kind of jobs are expanding here in this country and in very many other countries too we have on the other hand uh, high paid high skilled jobs that are increasing and then low paid jobs low skilled jobs and the middle is disappearing and it means that those high skilled high paid employees they don't need their welfare state mostly uh, only in old age or, or in sickness but those guys who are on the bottom they need and then the question is that uh, should we leave them to live on their own uh, with their too low salary uh, wages and to suffer or should we have basic income that will compensate uh, what has already happened and in fact here in Finland and especially here in Helsinki we already have that kind of low paid jobs and we have uh, uh, and we are compensating those jobs through Uh, housing allowance system because it's uh, rather expensive to live here in Helsinki and those who have very low uh, wages and low incomes uh, they can't live but uh, we are subsidizing them and subsidizing their uh, employee employers through housing allowances so that uh, it has already happened it it came not as a political solution that we will do it but it came through the kitchen door in secret it somehow sneaked in and it's there so that the question is that uh, should we say that okay this has happened that uh, let's make it official so that it uh, very much depends on the future uh, or on the view we have on future and very often in the social democratic side when they are criticizing basic income they are thinking that in the future we will have full employment uh, and uh, uh, good income and wages and we don't need in that case basic income but on the other hand if the future is not always that sunny uh, we have rainy days and uh, it may, may be so that it's raining constantly we have low paid jobs precariat is expanding and in that case uh, basic income would be a solution especially for those who are uh, like uh, freelancers micro entrepreneurs or uh, those people who have income source, different kind of in- income sources that are uh, irregular that, uh, something is coming today nothing is coming tomorrow something perhaps hopefully the day after tomorrow in that kind of uh, unsecure situation basic income would give security and make people's Uh, life happy or life's uh, happier i think that's right i think as you, as you say as we as the the precariat expands 
the the insecurity that people live with expands. You know, thinking about the the human costs and how social policy can support people and contribute to people feeling more secure becomes fundamentally important. And I think it's in that context that the Finnish experiment is so important. So I think the rest of the world, and certainly we in Australia, will be watching what happens here next year as you have the results from the experiment. I hope we may be able to talk again next year to, to reflect on some of those results. And Professor Oli Kangas, thank you so much for joining me today and giving up a, a public holiday on a beautiful spring day in Helsinki to come and talk about these important issues. Thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. That was Professor Oli Kangas speaking with Sharon Bassel there. Well, Sharon, you've spoken in person now to one of the world's leading figures on universal basic income. Where do you stand on the issue now? Do you think UBI could be the answer to our social welfare policy challenges? Probably not. Um, I mean, I think it was it was fabulous to have the opportunity to talk with Ollie about some of these issues. And one of the really interesting things about universal basic income is while it's had its detractors and its critics, it's had supporters on what we might call both the left and the right. Um, you know, those who see it as a way of really slimming down the welfare state, making it much more efficient, um, and those who are worried about sort of issues of redistribution and, and, and more equitable policy. So we've had people across the spectrum supporting it, which perhaps is always cause for at least questioning when people on both sides of the political spectrum, spectrum are strongly supporting something. Um, I don't think it is the answer. I think the universal basic income has often been presented as a silver bullet you know, as, as the answer. It may be one answer, but I think there are still lots of questions around it. The great thing about what's happening in Finland and what is beginning to have in, happen in other places is here we have an example of social policy that's actually being tested where we'll have some data coming through, we'll be able to analyse those data, we'll have you know, great minds like Oli Kangas looking at the data and seeing what we actually get from universal basic income, at least in the form that it's been trialled in, in Finland. And so rather than making policy based on what we'd like or our hunches or our ideological position, we've got some data to base those decisions on. So I really think the jury's out. I don't think we can say, yes, universal basic income is the answer to the, the, the policy challenges that we're facing, but we're going to have some really good data from Finland and from other places to help us know what it can offer. And that's exciting and that's important. I mean, some of these trials are on fairly fairly large scale, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, there's, there's now work being done um, in Canada and in Scotland, in India. So, you know, in very different countries, um, as well as the work in Finland. So we're going to have some really interesting cases to compare and to see where universal basic income does seem to make a, a positive difference and where it doesn't. When I talked to Ollie back in 2016, he was quite optimistic about the future of basic income and how it might work in Finland. Do you get a sense that he still has that same level of optimism or has the, 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 the politics and the problems surrounding uh, the rollout of the program in the Finland in, in Finland impacted his view on it? No, I think Ollie is, is still fairly positive about it. And I think he's always been 
a pragmatist, we might say, in terms of the politics that surrounds this. You know, in that first interview you did with him, he made the comment that, you know, the politics of this would matter. So I think he, he went into this with his eyes wide open. I think he's still very positive about it. I think he also wants to see the evidence. He's a researcher first and foremost. Um, but I think Ollie also recognises that in Finland it's a very complex um, set of benefits that they offer. You know, it's administratively complex. Um, it's quite costly to to, to um, put all of those benefits in place. There's a lot of duplication. Um, you know, they have dozens of different benefits that people can claim. And of course, that has costs for people in terms of claiming the benefits. So I think Ollie still sees this as a way of making the welfare state um, more efficient um, for both administrators, but also for the people who are benefiting from it. Um, but he's quite realistic. And he made the point very clearly on a couple of occasions that we'll know more next year when we see the data. <laughs> Ever the pragmatist. I, I think you, you raised the point that, you know, universal basic income is an idea that attracts support from both the right and left of politics. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about it. And again, I mean, uh, to, to plug the podcast that we did earlier, it's worth going back and having a listen to that, hearing the views of uh, not just Ollie before the uh, before the Finnish program was rolled out, but also the views of Charles Murray and the views of Guy standing on this, just to see why it has attracted such a sort of divergence of views. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also stay, say that our listeners should stay tuned. Ollie promised to come back and talk to us again next year. He was very careful about not giving away any secrets at this point in time. You know, he, he was saying we need to wait until next year when we've got the evaluation finalised and we know what, what the data are telling us. Uh, but he did promise to come and talk to us again. So that will be an interesting conversation. All right. Well, we will hold him to that promise. So The, the third part of the trilogy. The third part of the trilogy. Yeah, that's that's right. So now over to you, uh, listeners. What did you think of the discussion today? Let us know your thoughts and we'll do our best to discuss them on upcoming podcasts. Just send them in to podcast at policyforum.net. Now's the part of the podcast where we highlight some of our favourite comments from our Policy Forum audience. And I've got a couple I want to go through. On the topic of last week's double feature podcast on the Indo-Pacific, which Maya so brilliantly put together, we've got a comment here from Digby Harris, who's a regular listener, who who asked, so will the Indo-Pacific only be a securitising concept with China as the referent, or can it transcend the securitising narrative brackets containing China into a concept of mutually cooperative relationships. And he notes that Australia has an interesting five years ahead, navigating the sensitivities of countering foreign influence on our shores, whilst keeping healthy economic ties with our biggest trading partner. I think that's a very good point, Digby. And and in fact, I draw your attention, if you haven't seen it, to uh, a report that came out, I think today or yesterday, from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. It's called China and the Age of Strategic Rivalry. Rory Metcalf, who we talked about last week, is going to be editing our special Indo-Pacific section on uh, Policy Forum, called it an extraordinary document that should be required reading with 
forthright and frank analysis. And that really demonstrates, I think, that it's not just Australia that's wrestling with some of these issues uh, about how you how you work with, with China. So thanks again, Digby, for those comments. And I agree, a very interesting few years ahead for Australia-China relations. Uh, now, moving on to policyforum.net, where last week we published a piece by Professor Wayne Hall on the question of whether Australia should legalise recreational marijuana. It was titled, There's No Harm-Free Cannabis Policy. And it sparked quite a debate. Where do you stand on this, Sharon? Should Australia legalise recreational marijuana? Well, surprisingly, Martin, given that I have a view on almost everything, I don't necessarily have a very strong view on this. I'm shocked. I am shocked. <laughs> in, in, in many ways, I think here we need to defer to the real experts, um, particularly the health experts in terms of what the fallout's likely to be. Um, I know you're going to talk about some of our, our listeners' um, comments on this. And I think, you know, you can make a very strong argument that we have legalised lots of other things that perhaps have... Um, detrimental aspects to them. And it's not necessarily, you know, keeping marijuana illegal isn't necessarily something that makes a great deal of sense in that context. One point that I would make is, regardless of legalisation or not, is around usage. Um, and I uh, did a, was involved in a, a four-year research project um, that we finished a couple of years ago with children across six communities in Australia about what makes a strong and supportive community. And the thing the children talked about again and again was excessive alcohol use in their communities. Yeah, right. The yes. way that people became unpredictable and violence, violent um, and how that made them feel really unsafe. And some children also talked about drug use. So I think we've actually got a real issue in Australia about the use of substances, particularly alcohol. Now, making alcohol for example, illegal, is not going to fix that problem. But to me, the question of whether marijuana is legalised or not is not as big an issue as a conversation about how substances across the board are used and in some cases misused in Australia. And to me, that's at the heart of the issue. Well, it certainly uh, caused a bit of a stir amongst the readers of uh, Policy Forum. And I, I, I want to pick out one uh, response in, uh, in particular. On Twitter, Reese Cohen wrote, and this is going to be a bit lengthy, so I, I apologise for this. Reese Cohen wrote, I've got a few bones to pick with this otherwise excellent article on cannabis legalisation by the esteemed Wayne Hall. One, cannabis is prohibited and more people use alcohol than cannabis. Um, the, these, these facts alone are not sufficient to argue that prohibition is responsible for Australia's current rates of cannabis consumption. Secondly, black market cannabis is more harmful than regulated cannabis. Uh, uh, he makes the point that illegal growers don't have to test for heavy metals uh, and illegal dealers don't have to comply with responsible service laws um, and legalisation reduces those harms. And third, there's already a cannabis industry that has a vested interest in higher consumption rates and it currently operates entirely outside of the law and you don't solve the problem. Uh, you don't solve problem gambling by implementing a blanket ban on gambling. You develop evidence-based harm minimisation policy, which sort of goes to some of the points that you're talking about there, Sharon. Yeah, I think that's right. And we do have a reasonably good record in Australia um, around harm minimisation, around public awareness and public education campaigns on particular issues. Um, so that's you know that's certainly one way of thinking about the, the cannabis debate. So thanks, everyone uh, amongst the Policy Forum audience for those comments. And please keep them coming in. 
you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. You can find us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or you can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. It's a small gesture, but something that can go a long way in helping us get the word out about the podcast. That's all for today, but we'll be back next week with more. Cheerio. Bye from me. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.